Some say that when the first Dutch settlers came to the ridge of uplands along the Delaware River in central New Jersey, they found land that was rocky and the soil so acidic that an acrid smell wafted through the air. They called this remote and desolate place the Sourland Mountains. Around the time of the American Revolution, though, another group of people came to the Sourlands. These people, who had once been enslaved, saw something completely different in these mountains. They saw refuge, and there they made their homes and tilled their farms in the hard land. The story of the black settlers of the Sourlands has rarely been told. It's forgotten history. I'm your host, Dickon Hyatt. On Forgotten History, we explore intriguing and obscure stories from central New Jersey's past. The history of Hopewell Valley is usually told as the rise of a prosperous and mostly white community. But the truth is that black people have been part of the story, too, right from colonial times. Um, There were black troops with George Washington as he crossed the Delaware, and until the early 1800s, the region owed much of its prosperity to the unpaid labor of black slaves. And now... That history has been uncovered. Joining me today is Joe Amansky, editor of the Hopewell Express. And my guests today are Elaine Buck and Beverly Mills, the authors of a new book called If These Stones Could Talk. They researched the black families who settled in the Sourland Mountains and elsewhere in Hopewell Valley. Many of them are buried in Stoutsburg Cemetery, which was one of three African-American cemeteries in the area. Elaine, Beverly, thank you for joining me. Thank Thank you. Thank you very much. Why don't we start by you telling the story of how this book came to be? Well, I I think that we need to start from the beginning, and that would take us back to 2006 when Elaine got a phone call from a gentleman in West Amwell who was looking for advice on how to stop or potentially stop the desecration of a burial ground in West Amwell Township. And as a boy, he had known it to be a slave cemetery. And uh, as trustees of the Stoutsburg Cemetery, he wanted to know if we had information on what he could do to stop such an atrocity, which he thought it was absolutely, you know, the, one of the worst things that could happen. So, Elaine, you want to talk about how when you got the phone call? Because you're the one that first received it. Sure. So I received the phone call, and uh, the gentleman told me that he, he did really believe it was a burial ground, but there were no burial markers. And so uh, what after talking with him... Um, I decided that maybe I should call the Stoutsburg uh, Cemetery that we belong to, which is on Province Line Road in Hopewell Township. Um, I decided to call the Cemetery Association and it, for New Jersey. So I did. I called and talked with the lady and told her that we thought that this uh, burial ground was going to be desecrated. And she decided that I should call the state attorney general. So I called the attorney general. And uh, he did say, unfortunately, this is not uncommon for uh, contractors. That, you know, there could be maybe a couple people buried in an area where they need uh, to use the land. Uh, and plus, with Native Americans, uh, they would usually just desecrate the cemetery and you wouldn't even know about it. Wow. And so what he wanted us to do was to contact the local police department and the local newspaper shed some light on the subject so that we could at least buy some time and find out whether this really was a a burial ground. Mm -hmm. So then uh, we contacted uh, the Trenton Times and uh, 
they did set up an appointment, and we all met there uh, in West Amwell and went to the grave site to find out whether we could see anything. And so when we got there, um, uh, we parked in a gentleman's driveway next to the wooded area. It was clearly marked off by trees. And so uh, there was a, a rectangular-shaped area that was marked off by trees. And once we left uh, the parking area that we used, we did see some gravestones, and they had names on them. So then once we saw the names, it belonged to the Stevenson family, and we thought, hmm, I don't even never heard that name. And then the man that let us use his uh, driveway to park and came out, and I'll turn this over to Beverly to tell you what he said. It's just one of those things when you, you, you think it's a coincidence, but in, it, you know, in some respects it really can't be a coincidence because it was someone that I had worked with over 20 years ago, and he had retired, and um, he said to me, don't we know each other? And I said, no. And I said, I don't think we do. He said, yes, we did. We used to work together over 20 years ago. You used to work for the state. And I said, yes. And he said, well, my name is Al Lavery. And he introduced himself, reintroduced himself again. And I said, absolutely, now I remember you. In his hand, he had a portion of L. Nathan Stevenson's will, who was the owner of the property next door uh, in the 1800s. And the portion of the will stated that that portion of his land would, was to stay as a cemetery forever. Oh. <laughs> and so once we looked at the will, then we looked around the property, and there were sunken holes all over the place. And then there was some kind of, looked like a memorial marker. Well, the person that informed us of what was going on said, yes, it definitely was a memorial marker. And uh, he remembered uh, Mr. Hunter telling him, uh, now, this is a 90-year-old uh, West Amwell um, resident and told him that, yes, that, that memorial marker was put there and uh, some flowers were planted. Uh, someone had planted daffodils that come up every year to that site because of there was a slave that worked for Mr. Hunter's family. And so he knew that he had done this as a young child to build this memorial marker out of stone. Well, that was knocked down. And uh, we just saw, like, sunken holes, and we didn't know what the holes were. So after we uh, were there for a while, uh, the person that was going to build his driveway right through the area that we believed was the burial ground rode by and saw us, and he got out of the truck and screamed at us. (laughs) And so uh, after, you know, we didn't know who he was, but we did tell him, the reason why we came is because the names of the people that were believed to be buried there were uh, my husband's uh, ancestors. And so there were the names Hoagland and Dowdy and just familiar names of people that we knew, black people that we knew. So once we left, we did further research, and once we left, Beverly and I got to thinking, who is buried at our own Stoutsburg Cemetery, which was only maybe 10 miles down the road from this cemetery. And uh, we got to researching, and from that research, it all snowballed into this research that we had for our book, If These Stones Could Talk. Wow. 
that's quite a story. You know, during the course of that research, you found out some things about the area that a lot of people who live here might not even realize. For example, slavery was abolished in 1804 in New Jersey. And before that, how many slaves were there in this area, as far as you could tell from your research? Well, you know, um, in the late 1700s, there were at least 1,200 slaves in this area, in, in the central New Jersey area. And in Somerset County, Hunterdon County, you know, Hunterdon County was, was where, well, Mercer County was part of Hunterdon County until 1838. So you're talking about you know, a pretty large area, agricultural area. I think the biggest takeaway, and you're talking about what people don't uh, understand about that time period, is that um, uh, New Jersey was a slave state. Uh, when we do our presentations, um, that is the most uh, sometimes shocking revelation to a lot of people because they weren't taught that in schools. And they say, well, we never knew of the North to have any slaves. And you're talking about New Jersey as a slave state. Well, it certainly was. And as a matter of fact, New Jersey was the last northern state to abolish slavery. And, and you're talking about 1804. There is, you know, it, it sounds like, you know, New Jersey was trying to do the right thing. Perhaps they were. But however, when you, when you look at how the legislation was written, if anyone of a child was born after July 1st, 1804, they were to be freed, but it was a gradual process, meaning that a, a male child would be free after the age of 25 and for a female after the age of 21. Up until that time, they would be in what they would call apprentice training, apprenticeships. Uh, so you weren't actually freed. Anyone that was born prior to July 1st, 1804, would remain a slave. So uh, that was just one way that New Jersey uh, decided to handle the situation of, of uh, slavery when all the other surrounding states, New York, Pennsylvania, um, even in the New England states, they had all long abolished slavery. And what were the conditions of slavery like here compared to the South? Because everyone's familiar with the the plantations, but was it yeah. any better here than it was down in the South? Once again, it, that's that's uh, a question that we are asked, and from our research, no, it was really no different, meaning that slavery, the institution of slavery, is slavery. It, whether you ha- you're on a plantation of 300 people uh, in, in Mississippi or Louisiana, and you're picking cotton, acres and acres of cotton, or whether you're in a northern state, you're still owned by a human being. So the, the system of slavery uh, is cruel in and of itself. And uh, we have much research, and we could fill another book just with runaway documents, uh, people that were trying to, you know, devise all kinds of ways to buy their freedom, just runaways, just very, very, very cruel, you know, uh, system where people, you know, as young as six years old were being sold. Uh, and I want to add that they did have uh Codes, black codes yeah. for Negroes, mulattoes, and Indians. Yes. And we had to adhere to those codes. One of the many was that we weren't allowed to leave five miles off of the property of the person that owned us without a pass. Correct. And any white person could stop you and ask you for your pass. And if you didn't have it, you could be whipped, you could be whatever. I, you know, they were just yeah. doing horrible mm-hmm. things. So once you read those black codes, you think, well, this is just like the South. I mean, exactly the same setup. It's just that they were up in the North and they were, you know, yeah. doing different things. 
And, you know, of course, the, or, the agriculture was different. Mm -hmm. And in, in the South, where you, you needed more slaves, the more land you have, obviously you need more slaves. In the North, it wasn't the same situation where, you know, our crops are seasonal. And most of the time, it was a farming type, type of situation where most families had uh, maybe two or three or four slaves. If you had more, you were considered pretty wealthy. It was a, a smaller number of, of owned individuals. But again, you know, the, the system of slavery was, was the same whether it was five people or 500 people. There were towns where they had an official position of a person who, had, who was supposed to whip slaves who were caught. Is that, that true? We have read about the, the constables who, who had the task of doing the whipping, yeah, for, you know, there was a whipping post in Flemington, and there were some other, uh, you know, areas. Crosswicks. Crosswicks that had a whipping Trenton. post. Trenton, yeah. So that was, you know, where you would take your slave um, and make an example out of him or her or if, if they were out of line, and uh, other slaves, would, you know, would be required to watch. There was the possibility to leave slavery one way or another. You said buying your way out was one of them, or being freed, I guess, in the will of the owner. Christ, yes, um, that's right. And, and there were many people in your book who were former slaves or who, who had escaped slavery and who had made pretty amazing contributions to history, including in the army of George Washington. Could you tell me about one of those people? Oh, you're talking about Stives? Yes. Well, you can talk about Stives, then I'll talk about my direct family. Okay. Uh, so in our research, we found a man, uh, William Stives, and uh, he is talked about in an 1880 article by the New York Times. And uh, so William Stives is with George Washington on December 25th. He crosses to Delaware with him. And then he um, somehow um, he is sent out. He was in the Battle of Trenton. And he's sent out foraging for food. Now, whether that was from the Trenton area or whether it was when they got to Hopewell because they camped out, the troops camped out in Hopewell also. He uh, glanced up at the Sourland Mountains, and he went up there foraging for food and vowed that uh, he was initially from Virginia. We did check to see if he might have been one of George Washington's slaves, but we don't have don't know that. Where he's from. Yeah, we don't know where. We just know that... It, article said he was from Virginia and he vowed that he was going to come back once he got out of the war and move to the Sourland Mountains and that's what he did he moved in the Sourland Mountains and started the first black hamlet of, uh, of black people up there has 10 children and uh, from those 10 children the Stives family some are white and some are black because some of the children married white and uh, so now the Stives family is kind of getting together now. Uh, some of the white side is meeting some of the black at mm -hmm. our different events. Um, social media has helped because we have uh, some articles that were seen on Facebook and connected some of the people together. So that right there, we have information in our book that we really have dug deep to find we not only found William Stives, but we found other blacks that crossed the Delaware on December 25th with George Washington and the troops that I never heard about them. I'm going to be 65 years old this year. I graduated from Hopewell Valley Central High School in Pennington. Never heard of any of these people 
crossing the Delaware to George Washington. The black soldiers in particular had a pretty important job on that day. Oh, yes, they did. <laughs> yes, they did. And so after you read the research that we found, we found their names. And the names are kind of funny. Be, well, they're really not funny, but it's just unbelievable the names that they were given. There's, they didn't have uh, last names, so but they want to make sure uh, when I say they, the people that recorded these names wanted to make sure that you knew that they were black. And so one man in particular, his name is Dick Negro. And then you have Black Pompey. These soldiers came in, and they actually are, are credited by General Mills as saving the Battle of Trenton. Mm-hmm. I, How do they do that? With what they see, they um, came in from, they were marbleheaders. And these marbleheaders came in, they were, I call them uh, renegades. And they came in and they crossed that Delaware using those uh, Durham boats. And they crossed the Delaware in the dark. It was icy. It was cold. It was snowing. And, but they had the skills that uh, the troops needed to know how to, to get across without being detected. Yeah. And so that was one way. But they also had the artillery in their boats and they had the food and the horses and all of that in their boats. And so uh, they, they really saved the day for the Battle of Trenton, and also up in Long Island, too. Mm-hmm. You also found some family history while you were doing this research. Mm-hmm. Could you both tell me what you found out about your own family history? I think that my family history, this this whole, I call it an odyssey, has been an amazing, amazing amount of discovery for my family. When we first started, I had, I had known of the name Friday, True Heart, because a cousin of mine had done some genealogical research um, some years ago, and I, I had she had told me about the name, and I had heard it, and just you know, that was merely it. Well, come to find out that uh, Friday True Heart was my fourth great grandfather, and he was purchased in Charleston by Reverend Oliver Hart, who was pastoring down in in Charleston, South Carolina. But while he was pastoring, he was also a huge patriot and would go along the countryside to tell people the importance of breaking away from the British. So when the British came to evade Charleston, it was very important for Reverend Hart to, to leave the area pretty swiftly. So at that time, when he left Charleston, he took Friday with him. And at that time, Friday was 13 years old. But when he initially purchased him, he was three years old. And he also recorded that he was purchased along with his mother, Dinah. So that, that right there, that I could see that I had a fifth great-grandmother named Dinah, mm. which to me I, I would have never, ever, there was no way to ever know that because if you, for African-Americans to trace their history, their ancestry, it's almost impossible. It's almost impossible. If you, if you are familiar with anything that um, Henry Louis Gates puts on BP, on PBS, he will tell you that African Americans, if they can go back further than three generations, you know, it's they're very, very lucky. And I've been able to go back five because of uh, the records that were kept. That the information about Friday Trueheart came from a diary that was kept from Oliver Hart, and also my other fourth great grandfather, who lived in, was enslaved in Hopewell Township. That information came from a will from his master. That's what's one of the things that struck me while reading this book was how different it is 
experience it is researching family history, depending on what race you are, because, you know, if you're black, you have to look at these property records and peoples are listed along with like possessions, like silverware and things like that. It's uh, yes. pretty dehumanizing. But yes. Well, that's allow you to find out. Exactly. That's the way my, my fourth great grandfather, Frost, was listed. Well, Friday, actually, I should say, was, was listed because Initially, after the death of, of Oliver Hart, he was supposed to be given to his one of his sons. And then, for some reason, he made a codicil in his will, wrote a codicil in his will, and said, well, on second thought, uh, Bridie is to be owned by my wife, Anne, and he will receive his freedom after seven years. So they passed human beings through the family like they were, um, clocks and or furniture, gift. yeah. gifts. They were gifts. Mm-hmm. Wedding gift. Yeah. He had Friday Trueheart was related to William Trueheart. Is that it's his son or his grandson? Yes, that was his grandson. And he had an interesting encounter with Charles Lindbergh. Could you tell me about that? Well, yeah. Charles Lindbergh, um, you know, everyone knows of him being the huge icon, aviator, extremely wealthy man, you know, America's darling. When he was building his estate in the Sourland Mountains, he wanted to expand and he, he wanted to enlarge his, his estate. And so the land adjoining his property just happened to be owned by the Trueheart family, which was a black family. And I don't know whether many people are aware, but Lindbergh was a, was a racist. He hated black people. He hated Jewish people. Uh, he decided that he was going to go over to Billy Trueheart and uh, pretty much demand that he sell him his property, to which Billy Trueheart said to him, get off my property. There's more to life than money. This land has been in my family for over 100 years and pretty much slammed the door in his face. So <laughs> Lindbergh left and, you know, we no one really knows what happened after that, but what we do know for a fact is that Billy Trueheart left his house and never returned. Hmm. He went to live with uh, one of his nieces in Hopewell, in the borough of Hopewell. He ended up renting the farmhouse to a white couple who stayed there for a while, but as far as actually living in his property, he, he never returned. And, um, and we all know what happened with the Lindbergh story, mm-hmm. with, that, with his estate and the baby. Trueheart's land was in the Sourland Mountains. Yes. And that's where most of the black settlers lived. Was. Yes. So why, why was it that they ended up in that particular part of Hopewell Valley? Well, I think it was, um, I think that the land was accessible to them because it was not the most desirable land. And if you look at that and, and uh, the small black hamlet that was starting, you know, with, with the Stives family, the Trueheart family, I, I guess it was you know, and, and plus with having this uh, proximity of the ta- of the Stoutsburg Cemetery, it it seems that they just kind of naturally gravitated to the steps through the Sourland Mountain. And like I said, I think it was because they were able to get the land because it was hard. It was hard land. It was the it was called uh, initially it was called the Sourland because it was difficult to farm on. But they did make a go of it. You know, without you know doing the things that they needed to do to sweeten the soil. And my husband's family uh, lived in the Sourland Mountains also on many town roads, uh, which is near Hillbilly Hall. I don't know if anybody's ever been to Hillbilly Hall, but right on uh, many town road, my husband's family lived there and they were peach basket makers. Uh, and there was a lot of peach trees in the uh, region. Mm-hmm. And so they had peach orchards and uh, the blacks 
would make the baskets and work on the peach orchard. Right. And the peaches would go to New York and to Philadelphia to the market. So it was very prosperous to have uh, the slaves. Um, now, whether my husband's family were slaves, I, we really can't go back that far. Their last name is Nevius, and so there's white Neviuses and black Neviuses. And you kind of hit a roadblock when you start to research where they came from, but some of the black Neviuses are very, very light-complected, so it doesn't really take a rocket scientist to figure out what happened there. Uh, and so, um, you know, we look at the people that are uh, still there. Some people still have their homes there. And we think about uh, if you go up there at night, it's very mysterious. It's uh, kind of spooky. <laughs> uh, and just the land is just hard to make a go of. But people, they did it. They did. They did it. They worked on the quarries. Uh, they worked on the pottery and worked on the sawmills and just made a living. Yeah. Sharecropping. So we, some of us, are that we talk about in the book are descendants of these people. You've been members of the, or you've been involved with the Stoutsburg Cemetery Association mm -hmm. for more than 35 years. Mm -hmm. uh, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you came, a little bit about the Cemetery Association, a little bit about how you came to be involved with it and how that served a role as, as a seed for your research and involvement ultimately in this whole endeavor. Oh, gosh. I guess one word can sum that up. We were drafted. I walked into, I used to go to the meetings and I was a, a young mother. Um, I, always, I was always aware of the Stoutsburg Cemetery from uh, as, long back, as long as I can remember as a child. And when I um, came back to in, as a young mother and living in Pennington and raising my family, my grandmother used to say, you know, you're going to meetings. It really wasn't a choice. And so I started going to meetings, and just at one of the meetings, I was drafted by my Uncle Fred one day. He said, here, you're going to be the secretary from now on because us old folks can't do this. We need the young blood, and so you're going to have to carry on. Throughout the years, it, it's been the management of the cemetery has has been passed down through family members and individuals, and, and it's 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 been that way for I, I guess as long as I can remember. My great grandfather Herbert Hubbard, who I have to mention before on this podcast, is was the first uh, African American graduate from Ryder University when it was called Trenton Business School. So he graduated in 1894, and uh, that has been documented also. He, used to, he was the secretary at one time, and he took scrupulous notes. And he, and he had the names of the people that would come to the meetings and the people that, you know, were purchasing plots. And, you know, we have those records. And so it was just through natural attrition, you know, that we were able to, you know, be part of the whole, uh, you know, being part of the Cemetery Association Board. And I was drafted by uh, the former president, uh, Robert Grover. We called him Bobby. And uh, so my husband said, well, I'll be the vice president because the vice president had died. And they didn't have a vice president for about 10 years. So my husband said, well, I can do what he did, which was basically not much because he had been dead for 10 years. <laughs> So my husband took that job, and Bobby, I, they had a meeting at my house, and Bobby looked at me, and he said, Beverly needs help, so you're going to be Beverly's assistant. So that 
that's how I got drafted. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, my husband and Bobby passed away. My husband ended up being the president of this Salzburg Cemetery. And uh, through our research, we all have family members buried there. Um, my great-grandmother is buried there. My grandmother, my mother, and my son. Our son died in 2000. He's buried there. I had no idea the significance of that cemetery until we started doing our research and all the Civil War veterans that are buried there, yes. Uh, yes. World War One veterans. My mm-hmm. uh, uncle Jesse Bartsdale was in World War One in the 807th Infantry. And I started looking up the what the different jobs were for the infantry, and I, I was just astounded that we have been associated with that cemetery for so long and did not know that. That's correct. What is the reason that there is a specific black cemetery in Hillsborough? Well, back in the day, uh, cemeteries were segregated, and um, it wasn't until 1884 that it became illegal to discriminate even in in death. (laughs) So it's the way it was. And Stoutsburg served its purpose as a burial ground for African-Americans to be laid to rest with dignity, the same as the Pennington African Cemetery, which is two blocks from my house in Pennington, serving the same purpose. I have uh, relatives also buried there. This is where people, this is where the black people went. It was just, just the way it was. And, And that's kind of a current that runs through the book is that there was a lot of discrimination even long after slavery ended. Can you tell me about some of the things you found out about the the local area that went on in the 1920s and 30s? Oh, goodness. Well, I would say that that was during the 1920s, early 1900s, up into the 1920s in particular, there was a huge resurgence of uh, the Klan. And that's another area that people think, oh, this is only a Southern thing that's, you know, rampant in the South. No. (laughs) As a matter of fact, the Klan had... The first Klan burial took place in Blauenberg, which is right the next town up from Hopewell. And a huge number of Klansmen descended upon this Blauenberg Cemetery to lay this guy to rest. In Hopewell, there was a huge Klan following that came uh, uh, to the Methodist Church because the Klan was given time to speak so they could recruit people at one of the services, at one of the church services. And in the newspaper articles... The streets were so congested with cars. There were so many people. They couldn't fit not one more person inside the church. People were, like, hanging outside the window listening. And then 40 people came in full clan regalia and were able to speak and recruit. So you talk about racism. Yeah. But, you know, despite the racism that you faced, you know, the, the black community, I, I got a picture of a community that was very vibrant, that had a lot of its own traditions, and one of those big traditions was food, and there's an entire <laughs> chapter dedicated to that. Maybe could you talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah. Eladzi Lane's territory. <laughs> well, I know for uh, myself, growing up, there was a lot of gatherings, uh, raising funds, basically, for the church. The church that I belong to is now called Second Calvary Baptist Church, but when before 1959, it was called the First Colored Baptist Church of Hopewell. So in order to keep the church going, there'd be various dinners that my grandmother and and some of her friends uh, that went to our church, uh, Mrs. Harrison and the, the Hughes family from the Hughes Funeral Home, they would get together and have dinners and 
the dinners were actually served in my grandmother's house around the big dining room table. And uh, I just, when I think back, I was a little girl. I was, I don't even know how old. I was probably five or six years old. And I think of helping to get the dinners prepared. We had our own chickens. And so, you know, there was a lot of catching of the chickens and feeding the chickens. I, I always thought, oh, you know, I got a new batch of chickens for Easter or whatever. N- not thinking that they were going in the soup pot one of these days. <laughs> it was all farm to table. Yes. I, I mean, when I hear farm to table, I think my grandmother when would. You little just, piglets. Yes. I, we raised pigs. We had chickens right there in Hopewell Borough. Now, the pigs, we had them up on the mountain. Everybody would, you know, kind of hide them off in a little pig pen area at uh, Uncle Albert's house on the mountain. But, I mean, just being raised like that and using some of the recipes that my grandmother and great-grandmother used, uh, they were, my great-grandmother was a sharecropper, which was another name for a slave after slavery was over. And uh, they had some serious recipes that, uh, one that comes to mind, I think, oh, boy, Thanksgiving's coming up, and the local farmers are, are people that, hunted and went fishing and all, they would bring things to my grandmother and great-grandmother that they caught. And one of the things that they would bring would be rabbits, of course, and squirrels. And uh, I just remember my great-grandmother being so happy when somebody brought fish and the fish had fish roe in it so that (laughs) we could make fish roe and scrambled eggs. And then the one other thing that really... some of the things just kind of creep me out. I guess I'm just not cut out to be a slave. <laughs> we had chicken feet <laughs> and pig feet, and all of this would be on the table. And it was like a feast for them. I mean, they were so happy. And so I grew up like that. I kind of don't eat the same things that they ate, but well. I do have some recipes. <laughs> yeah, I think most of the people in my family do eat hog chitlins and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> I just, you know, I just I couldn't do it. But I do remember the elation on their face when somebody brought them something that was freshly caught, you know, a turtle, a snapping turtle, of course, and all kinds mm-hmm. of things. So that's the way I grew up. And it really made me uh, into the person that I am. Uh, not only did they have a lot of food recipes, they had a lot of home remedies, and I see all this homeopathic stuff that people use nowadays. I'm wondering, the 12th chapter of the book is about going forward from here, now Mm -hmm. that you've written this and researched this. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you hope people will read the book and what impact you think it can have on this community and communities throughout the area. Well, you know, the the intent in writing the book was not to, certainly not to embarrass or shame people, um, because many of the uh, last names that, of the black people, which mirror the names of white families still in the area, which clearly indicates that they were slave owners. So, so when people read the book, they're going to recognize that some of these names, and they'll maybe be surprised that, oh, well, this family was a slaveholding family, but like I said, that's not the intent. The the intent is to educate, and you can't move forward unless you know your past. 
And if our intent is really to get it into the schools, and because you know, if it it does not make sense to continue not teaching our history the way it really was. You know, you, you we cannot just relegate African American history to one month out of the year. Black History Month has served this purpose, but African American history is American history. And you cannot separate the two because if it wasn't for African Americans building this nation, and if you look at it from a from a macro to a micro level, as we have done in the book, concentrating on this region and what the blacks have contributed, you can replicate this story all over the United States and how it was built. So people need to know the real story. And we just don't want the book to be in our region. We really yeah. hope that everyone right. The book. Get something out of it for all families. We encourage you to research your own family history and find out where did I come from. And uh, if grandmom's still living, maybe check with grandmom and find out. Uh, all families have a story. Uh, this one just happens to be extremely hard. It almost makes us ill mm-hmm. sometimes when we're researching mm-hmm. uh, and we find out what people from the past, black people from the past have gone through. So we want to remember the past, celebrate the future, mm-hmm. and just enlighten people on history that right. is so difficult. It is that difficult. People just we acknowledge rather that. Rather not mm-hmm. talk about it. Yes, we Again, the book is called If These Stones Could Talk. It is being published by Wild River Press. Where can people go to learn more? They can buy the book. Uh, they can contact me at B. Mills 72, that's B-M-I-L-L-S 72 at verizon.net or Sharon. Sharon.buck at verizon.net. And you can also go on Facebook. Mm-hmm. We have a Facebook page, If These Stones Could mm-hmm. Talk. And every Friday we have a Friday memory because there were so many stories we couldn't put it all in the book. Beverly and Elaine, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having It's been a pleasure. Forgotten History is a production of Community News Service. Check out our community newspapers at communitynews.org. The show is recorded at the studios of 107.7 The Bronx at Ryder University, and special thanks to The Bronx Eric Weinstein. Our theme music is The Quiet Earth by Thomas Barandin. Thank you for listening. Our theme music is The Quiet Earth by Thomas Barandin. 